Guys, if you've got a Bible with you, I'd love you to turn to uh, Matthew chapter 9. Matthew's in the kind of uh, second part of the Bible. It's one of the biographies of Jesus. If you don't have a Bible with you, don't worry. It's going to come up on the screen in just a minute. But I, I want to start with this idea. I don't know if you ever have this in your household, but in our household, um, we have one person who's really good at looking for things and one person who's really not. I'm really not good at looking for things. I'll be like, where has this gone? I thought this was here. And I'll walk in and Abby's like, it's there. It's staring right at you. And were this just kind of a monthly or kind of every other week occasion, it would be fine. This is a daily occurrence. I'm like, where are my shoes? They're on your feet. Where are the keys? They're where they're normally hanging. Where's this? They're in the cupboard like it always is. For some reason, I can't seem to find. Does anyone else resonate? Chikasa, you resonate with this? I can't seem to find things. And as we begin this morning, I just want to say this. It can be really easy when we look at Jesus to miss what is staring at us in the face. To miss what's staring straight at us. In Matthew's uh, biography of Jesus, we see this story in in chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and the sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have come to call the the righteous. I've not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Lord God, this is your word that we turn to and we long to hear from. Would you open our hearts and our minds? Would you give us your eyes for your story and your kingdom breaking in in our midst? Amen. So in this scene, Jesus is in the middle of blowing apart the religious and social order of the day. And he does so in such a way that, particularly in our time, it's incredibly easy to miss all that's going on. Essentially, Jesus says this, Matthew, come and follow me. Oh, and by the way, we're going to your house for dinner. At the heart of Jesus' earthly ministry strategy, we find a staggering thing. Not a church, not even a movement at this stage. We don't find Jesus leading a crusade or even a healing and preaching campaign, though he definitely does these things. At the heart of Jesus' earthly ministry is a table. A table in all its simplicity, its everyday function and normality. Inspiring beauty and growth and going a long way to see Jesus-like formation. For Jesus, almost his entire methodology was centered around ways of convening people, slowing them down, doing life together, often around food and with people from all different walks of life. One theologian joked this, that we only ever see Jesus doing one of three things. He's either going to a meal, he's either at a meal, or he's coming from a meal. That's essentially all we ever see Jesus doing in the scriptures. 
And the moment that Matthew becomes a follower of Jesus does not have an invitation to a meeting, but to a meal. And not to a temple, but to a table. But as with most things with Jesus, his concern is not the thing. In this case, the table itself. His concern is not the table itself, but actually what the table points towards. Because the idea of table points beyond itself to a greater reality and vision. It's a glimpse of the ways in which we become a people of the kingdoms of the heavens. Table at its simplest level is a convening mechanism by which we can gather people with whom we often grow, in many, often in subconscious ways towards who Jesus wants us to be. Perhaps some of the examples in our time could be doing food with people, having a coffee together, going for a walk, sitting and chatting, throwing a party, playing games together. In short, I think it could be defined by the things we do together that are not designed around our profession or our vocation. So this isn't just another business meeting. Jesus is doing something different here. But a really good question is, why does this matter? Why? I think if we look at the story, and if we look at the broader bits of Scripture, we see this, that this goes back to Jesus' vision around discipleship. We've been looking at a series for the last few weeks on uh, our values and the expressions of our values. And table is one of the expressions, I think, of our values. But for many of us, the idea of table is something that's new in our walk with Jesus. When you do go to a discipleship program, you don't often see seminars advertised on how to make a great meal. Although, imagine how cool that would be. Can you imagine on the program, morning session, smoked salmon bagels. Evening session, how to make curry and naan breads. I'm in. But I digress. The point is that 24-7, whole life discipleship looks like all of our being as places for Jesus to work in us. Bits of our life that we're really comfortable with him working in and bits that we're not. Bits where uh, we don't want him to be involved and bits where we do. Styles and practices we find easier and some that we find harder. Perhaps this will help. Wilbur, our oldest son, is, is a really budding artist. Uh, when he's meant to be asleep, if you sneak into his room, you'll find him under his bed sheets drawing or coloring in or doing some artwork. And it's really hard to tell him off because it's like, I'm, not, I'm, I'm just drawing. You're meant to be asleep, but look at this. He's obsessed with it. But art is a multidisciplined area. If you ever talk to an artist, they never say, um, all I do is coloring in. They never say that. Um, I only do watercolor, sorry. Now, they might specialize in an area, or they might be more confident or comfortable in a certain area. But they will have still learned and practiced and be aware of lots of other disciplines. So they'll be aware of pottery and oils still life and mixed media and graphic designs and textiles and pastels. They're aware of the broader spectrum. And in a way, there's a similar path in our walk with Jesus. Discipleship to Jesus is not a one-size-fits-all. It's a multidisciplined, a multifaceted journey that incorporates lots of the different things we see Jesus doing. However, our tendency is to veer towards the streams and pathways we like best and avoid or have distaste for the others. Well, what do I mean? Well, some of us who've grown up in around the kind of staunchly evangelical church, 
where we would say, do you know, it's all about expository preaching. That's all it's about. That's the most important thing. And some of us who are from more charismatic streams would like, do you know what? Unless people have been raised from the dead and healed in our services, then it's just not right. It's not what God wants. Some of us need worship. Some of us need word. Some of us need it all to be about justice. Some of us want it all about contemplation. Others about action. And in the church, we've often weaponized our own traditions and practices against others. Where we've said, because they're not doing the thing that I do and I see Jesus in, somehow that's not right. We've weaponized spirituality to think there's only one true way to worship Jesus. For the charismatics, unless you're casting out demons and rolling about in the aisles, it's not real. For the contemplative, unless you're up for an hour before everyone else in the day, before the Father, then you're a heathen. If you're an evangelical and you want a three-hour long expository sermon, and then the social ones think we should simply be out on the streets doing justice. And rather than celebrate the richness in other traditions that we may find harder or less comfortable to walk in, we've made them out to be bad and not legitimate. And here's the interesting thing. This isn't a problem for new Christians. This isn't a problem for those who are new to the faith or young in their faith often. But the older we get, we drift towards the Christianity we like and the things that we feel comfortable in. And to a point, this is okay. To a point, it's okay to say, do you know, this is what I'm good at. This is where I feel most alive in Jesus, where I'm going to run into. But the danger is we can um, finish with an end product where discipleship reflects ourselves and not the Savior of the world. Where our discipleship to Jesus simply reflects our whims and, and passions. I wonder when I mentioned table this morning, how many of you just switched off? As though this wasn't legitimate, this wasn't a thing. How many of you thought, ah, it's not really for me? If we want to be a whole people for the whole of our city, for the whole of what Jesus wants, then we need to do whole life discipleship. That means looking at what Jesus was trying to do, the bits that we're in for, and the bits that actually we find a bit uncomfortable. And I would say, rather than critique and condemn other parts of discipleship, we need to learn from them. I've been asking myself this week, who am I trying to learn from? I want to learn from my five-year-old daughter whose response is to pray first and seek the doctor second, rather than the other way around. I want to learn from the eight-year-old who turns up to worship night, despite it not being their thing to be here. I want to learn from the sex worker on our streets who sits and wants to hear my story and value me as a person despite the fact she only has 15 minutes before she's forced back onto the streets to put food on the table. I want to learn from the person who opens their Bible every morning before the sun rises. I want to learn from this little child who is going to come and lead us in worship. Amen. So as we come to the idea of table as an expression of our Christian discipleship, and one that perhaps hasn't traditionally fit inside our idea, what do we do with it? Because lots of people gather around tables. This isn't a Christian idea that we would have dinner together or that we'd gather together. It's a human idea. So why is, what's Jesus doing and what's different here? Doing life around a table is an intriguing paradox because it speaks simultaneously to something incredibly alien to how we want to do life in our times, yet something we instinctively recognize as part of our DNA. 
For instance, when we meet with people, we often do it around a table, often a coffee table or a dining table where we drink and food and, and where those things usher us into a place where we learn and grow and develop. And we know this instinctively. We don't have to think about it. I can't imagine going on a date with someone and saying, could we just trade facts about each other and then we'll catch up afterwards? No, you go out for dinner. It would feel weird to have people over to your house and, and learn about them as you, could you just read out your resume or your CV to me? I'd love to learn about you. And it's not as though we don't spend time getting to know about these things over the course of dinner. We may learn about people's skills and professions, but we do it in a different way. When we're behaving well, we sit and we relax and we slow down and we do life together. At the same time as recognizing the need for life around a table, we're so easily dragged away from it. Allow me for a moment to indulge in my heretical version of the gospel. This is the gospel according to Chris Arnold. Matthew, you are a complete screw-up, but come and follow me. By the way, we're on a really tight schedule. We're going to go to a series of meetings with some very important people where I'm going to teach them incredibly deep and profound theology. And then we're going to do a 24-hour prayer and worship session during which the worship leader's hands will eventually fall off because of exhaustion. But it's fine. I'm the son of God, so I'm going to heal him afterwards. After which, I need you to man the social media accounts and get the word out there because it's going to be a busy few years to get ready. We might not have time to eat, by the way, but if there's a window, could you get Uber Eats to bring in some food for us? The gospel according to Jesus looks somewhat different. Matthew, come follow me to your house for dinner. I don't know about you, but I know which one I veer towards more often than not. The table in this episode acts as an incredible leveler. Indeed, it's like a revolution to the conventions of the day. The Jewish laws and customs are designed to keep people separated. And Jesus initiates something that would draw people together. Just in this encounter alone, we see a radical vision that Jesus has. So here are my few things I think Jesus is doing in this moment. Firstly, he's redefining acceptable boundaries. It wasn't simply that Jesus was hanging out with people that was the bad idea. It, was that it wasn't just a bad idea. It made him ceremonially unclean. For a Pharisee to eat with the so-called sinners wasn't simply giving yourself a bad name. It was to defile yourself. In Jesus' day, the religious purity that they were all seeking came from separation from sinners and not engagement with them. And the easy thing to do is to think, well, those laws aren't part of our world anymore. Those are not things we do. But often they are, often in really crippling and painful ways. There are people we actually don't want at our table. We might not call them sinners or tax collectors, but we may call them by other names. We may call them by the name of a different tribe. We may call them lawyers or politicians. We may call them liberal or conservative. We may call them black or white, or we may call them something else. There may be the people we disagree on, or the people that we cancel. Those with different views on politics, on money, on sexuality, on environment and more. But our table is to be more than simply creating an enticing echo chamber for those that we agree with. Sometimes we don't like people's choices, their worldview, their parenting style, their shopping choices. Hello. Their shopping choices, their football team or their food preferences. 
Is it working now? Okay. And for those who don't like our choices, we don't invite the lost or the broken or the different or the smelly around our table because it's uncomfortable and we refuse to know them. And guess what? The Pharisees would applaud our choices. We're called to more than a Christianized version of our world. It might be woke to hate on certain people and to take to social media to call them out on it, but it isn't Christian. Authentic table means we invite them in. We don't change anyone by hating on them. In what sense is our table a place for those who we don't like or we don't agree with? Or perhaps we choose to be at someone else's invitation at their table of people we don't agree with. Jesus got hanged for hanging out with the so-called wrong people and at the same time we're killing Christianity by choosing to avoid them. We've created country club in our midst for our unwillingness to do awkward table stuff. If our Christianity is designed around our level of comfort, we will never fully realize the call to follow Jesus and take up his cross. Secondly, this. It draws us into worship in a whole new way. We discussed last week the notion of temple, this idea of God's presence being saturating the whole earth. And that draws me to God in a unique and profound way, often in, in sacred ways, sensing the awe and majesty of God. But it doesn't draw me to God in a way that a table does. This is something different. Have you noticed that the God of the universe, the one whose presence is sacred, often too sacred for humanity to bear, sits down in the person of Jesus for dinner? I find it incredible how accessible that Jesus appears in these moments. I don't know if it's just me, but I'm deeply reassured. I'm more drawn to Jesus by the idea of him saying, uh, could you pass the salt, please? Or perhaps even burping and saying, excuse me, I have no idea where that came from. Perhaps that's a bit of a British version of Jesus. <laughs> but in this, we're drawn into worship in a whole new way. Because this worship is where the everyday objects of food and drink, and laughter, and stories, and relaxation are not innocent bystanders to what's going on. But in and of themselves, they become instruments of sacrament. They become rituals in the everyday reality of life that can connect us to the divine. Thirdly this, they offer a vision of something new. Jesus sometimes told people what the kingdom of God was like, but often... He shows them and models to them what the kingdom of God is like. And he does it here by offering something different to what many of us would normally imagine. Jesus, through a seemingly casual meal, models at least the following to us. A sense of slowing down to a world that insists and even worships fast-paced and busy lives. He offers invitation amidst a culture of exclusion. He offers community to insular worlds. He values people in a moment of contempt for others. And he offers trust in a time of cynicism. I wonder what it would look like for us to adopt these things. But to adopt these things is to turn away from much of which the church holds dear. Jesus models and in turn extends the opportunity to have our reputation ruined. That God's reputation might be lifted high. 
I wonder if a bigger question than what do we think of the way of Jesus is how much do we value our own reputation? I remember recently talking to some parents who didn't applaud the choice of their son's fiance. She had completely different values and beliefs and, and she was very clear and very explicit about the way she offered them. The mum said to me, she said, I've been asked to go shopping with her but felt I couldn't because it would be condoning her choices. And I said, no, it doesn't. It doesn't condone her choices. It says you like shopping and that you care about your son and his future and that you're able to put aside differences to be a light for Jesus in a place you feel desperately uncomfortable with. We've got to offer a vision of something new. Next is this, fun and friendship are part of the deal. Sometimes, some of these tables are really tough places to be. They're not all meant to be like that. Jesus went to parties. Jesus wasn't always serious. I love the moment where on the Emmaus Road, it says Jesus play acts or pretends to make a point. Quite like the idea of Jesus messing around. And he certainly didn't allow everyone to every table. There were moments where he chose to be with his friends, his closest friends. The table is a recognition that we're in need of fun, some of you way more than others, and of friendship and people to love us and that we enjoy spending time with. Next is this, we meet people where they're at. As Christians, we've become better at hosting than being hosted. We prefer the conversation on our terms rather than someone else's. And we can often feel that the meaningless small talk is beneath us and not lofty enough but it's where the vast majority of people spend the vast majority of their lives. Have you noticed the church's strategy largely is, can we get people here that we can host them? And Jesus' strategy was, can we meet them there where they're at? We've lost the ability to be hosted and instead simply play host. And with that, it can be lovely, but it can also make us institutionally arrogant and unsafe for other people. I think we need to learn to be hosted. Some of us are useless witnesses for Jesus because we're too awkward at other spaces. Was it someone said we've become too heavenly minded to be of any earthly use? How can we be a people that are hosted? Jesus came with some of the most compelling, life-changing and stringent views on morality, human ethics and behavior. Yet he was still invited to parties. Someone once said this, it's not staggering that Jesus chose to hang out with the poor, the broken, marginalized, social outcasts, and hated people of his time. For someone of Jesus' character and mission, you would expect that. What is truly staggering is that they chose to hang out with him. Next is this, rhythm and cadence matter. It's easy to think that the ancient world didn't have the same time or professional pressures as us. And in part that's true, and it's definitely different. But as you look at what Jesus came to do, what he came to the earth to do, what his mission was, it wasn't like he was immune to the pressures of time. Yet he acted with a different rhythm and cadence to many of us. He chose to slow down, to eliminate hurry for a bigger purpose. How will we engage in table living? What are the opportunities we have for doing life at a different pace and in a different way? As you reflect on your life, what opportunities do you have to extend a table to those around you. Like many things, table is a deeply intentional way of life. But because it's deeply intertwined with things that go against modern ideals of success and progression, it can be easily overlooked. 
on a very simple basis. Each one of us have 21 meal opportunities a week. If you're Chikwaza, there's many more. But for most of us, we have 21. Or put it another way, 21 God-given places and times to live in a different way, at a different rhythm, and with a different purpose, even if we just use one of them a week. But table is more than a meal. It's a conviction to do other things with a table in mind, to invite people on our walks for coffee, into our activities and our pastimes. Ultimately, the table recognizes that we're not intended to be the best version of ourselves in isolation. That company draws us into a place that's different and shapes things in us that we cannot do alone. And finally this. Whether we are there or not, we've got to recognize the presence of God is often found in the naughty places. The presence of God is often found in the naughty places. A quick observation for those who feel like this would need to be heavenly utopia. Not all tables are good places. Around our tables, not everyone will be well behaved. Come and join our family for breakfast if you want an example of that. And in the text, it doesn't say that the sinners and tax collectors were all of a sudden well behaved because Jesus happened to be there. In fact, the implication of the text, indeed the reason it's probably mentioned there, is because they were behaving as they were socially expected to do. Not very well. And we might not like it, and it might offend our sense of Christian uprightness, but I think some of us need to develop the spiritual gift of naughtiness. I think some of us need to break out of our religious piety and find ourselves in some naughty places. Don't let our piety, our religiousness, whatever else, the baggage we bring, exclude us from being in the place where the presence of God is. I said it before, but it's worth saying, the, the place where I've often felt the presence of God most acutely in our city is when we've sat and had a meal with sex workers. That's the place where God often chooses to dwell. Because he can't break into our religious piety often, so he chooses to be in a place where brokenness allows the strength of God to live. If we're not willing to be in some of the naughty places, that doesn't mean being naughty, but if we're not willing to be in some of those places, we might miss out on what God has to say. Hebrews 12, it says this in there, it says, See to it that no one misses the grace of God. I wonder how serious I take it. How seriously do I, I take it that on me is to make sure no one misses the grace of God? Who am I excluding or subconsciously deeming unworthy of God's grace? You know, here it's not that we push them towards God's grace, but rather we show them God's grace. Because if we don't demonstrate God's grace, if we don't show his kind of love, poured out for people regardless of whether they deserve it or not? How will our world begin to experience and be drawn into the wonderful grace of God? See to it that no one misses out on the grace of God. Hey everybody, so nice to see you, so glad you're here. Oh, oh, oh.